Good morning. How are you doing? So I, I feel like Debbie was talking directly to me about non-Patriots fans that entire time. Uh, I did feel a little called out. I'm from, I'm from Ohio, and so I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, which is, everybody just has pity for me. So it's, it's great. It's fine. Uh, there's no competing team to worry about there. Uh, oh, well. Three years in a row. Good for you guys. There we go. I, I can be supportive. <laughs> we won seven games this year. Anyway, I'll stop. That, that was big for us, so I'll, I'll stop. Anyway, so I think one of the most difficult parts about reading the Bible is books like the book of Revelation. Anybody that agrees with me on that? Uh, you read these books and you get really lost very, very quickly because it's kind of crazy feeling. Uh, when I was in high school, the Left Behind series came out. You can date me by that if you want to. That's fine. I can tell you later how old I am if it makes you feel better. But I, like thousands, maybe millions of other Christians throughout the world, started reading the Left Behind series, and I got sucked in hard. Now, if you've never read it, that's probably fine. Uh, for those of you that don't know what it's about, it's a fictionalized, and I'll say that again, it's a fictionalized account of the book of Revelation. However, I think for many of us who read it, when it came out, it felt more than fictionalized. This thing felt like it was really happening, and it was intense. It was dramatic. It was serious as you're going through it. It kind of honestly became kind of like a spiritual moment for me as I'm reading this, these books, if I'm being honest. I cried like multiple times. I think I read them more intensely than I probably have ever read the Bible. Again, if I'm being really honest there. Uh, I was mesmerized. I was terrified. I was sucked in from the very first page when we're told that all of a sudden, all of these people throughout the world disappear and all that's left behind is their clothes in a very neatly arranged pile, <laughs> which is my favorite part of the entire series because that's an hilarious detail. Like, who cares? Like, okay, nice, nice tidy piles of clothes. That's great. <laughs> you get sucked into this thing. It, it tells you all of these things from the book of Revelation, according to what these guys think, essentially. The, the Antichrist is going to be some charismatic tech guru turned politician. Uh, the letters to the seven churches are written to actual churches today, including one in Philadelphia. Hopefully that's not somebody we know. Uh, the mark of the beast is going to be a chip implant in the middle of your forehead or something like that. I don't remember. It never ended. The adrenaline kept rising as I read this. It, it left me with so many things to interpret, to try and figure out as I'm reading it. And honestly, it ended up paralyzing me by the end of it because it was too much. It was too intense. It was too serious. There were too many things to have to figure out. And I wasn't even sure that I wanted to sign up for that version of the Bible. It was a little too much Mission Impossible and not quite enough Jesus, I thought, as I was reading it. And you know, I think, unfortunately, this is often what happens when we read the visions and the apocalyptic literature in the Bible, that we get sucked into these crazy outlandish stories, these visions, these pictures of things, and we're like, 
Ah, I'm not sure that I can sign up for this version of stuff. I'm not sure that I'm okay with this, at least in the way that I'm interpreting it. We get terrified. We're worried that we're not smart enough to figure out the hidden code. We feel like we have to go and build a hidden bunker underneath our house with enough bottled water and canned food to last us for 10 years. We start turning a little nutty when we read these things. We analyze, we obsess, we fixate. And I think what often happens when we read these parts of the Bible is that we get so focused on the edges of the picture that we don't catch what the main point is. You know what the main point of the book of Revelation is? Nothing to do with implants in your forehead. (laughs) Nothing. Or the other crazy things that are in there like blood, rivers of blood and dragons and all this type of stuff. Nothing to do with that. Fear is not the main point. The main point is that Jesus is returning and that when he comes back, that everything's going to be made right once and for all, that all things are going to be aligned in the perfect order that he had when he began creating everything, and that all of us who are followers of Jesus throughout time are going to be connected together forever, for eternity, in front of his throne, worshiping him forever. That is the main point of the book of Revelation. But sometimes we read this stuff, and it's really hard to get to there. And today, we're starting a series on the book of Ezekiel, which is equally difficult uh, to get to the main point at times, because it's easy to get caught up in the strange stuff. Dude laid on his side for one year. One year on your side. That's terrible for your body. Terrible for your body. Your chiropractor would kill you if you did that to yourself. He goes quiet for so long, so long without speaking at all, that people begin to think that he has legitimately lost the ability to speak. He cooks his dinner at one point over a fire. If you get stomach sick, just cover your ears real quick. Over a fire made from human feces. This is nasty stuff, right? This is not healthy, not good for you stuff. Here's the good part. That's not the point of the book. It's not how crazy he gets. Here's the point of the book, that, I, that Ezekiel is in agony over the sin of the people of Israel. That he is so passionate about them knowing God, about them encountering the holy and completely other than God, about turning away from all their other idols, from their other sin, and focusing on who God is, that he's willing to go to extremes that he's willing to do the things that none of us would sign up to do. He's willing to go there because he wants them to encounter God. He's passionate about it. He was passionate about holiness, and and Israel was not holy, and they needed to be made holy. You know, the only way that you can be made holy? Through encountering God. That's it. So that's where we're going to jump into this morning. We have our own crazy vision to wade through. Uh, And it will be a slog at first, so stick with me. Uh, But I think there's some really good stuff in this for us this morning. So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come and to speak to us. Jesus, I just thank you for your presence. I thank you for being here with us. I thank you that you do the hard work, that you go the extra step, that you've made it possible for us to encounter you. And I ask this morning that we will encounter you. Like Ezekiel, we want to be changed by you, changed by encountering you in your full glory. And so I ask for that today. Come, 
and be here with us. Come and speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump in. Ezekiel 1, 4 through 28. If you have a Bible, open up to it. There's Bibles in the backs and on the side. Feel free to grab one. And here we go. <laughs> It'll be interesting, guys. Get ready. As I looked, I saw a great storm coming from the north, driving before it a huge cloud that flashed with lightning. There was fire inside the cloud, and in the middle of the fire glowed something like gleaming amber. From the center of the cloud came four living beings that looked human, except that they had four faces and wings. Their legs were straight, their feet had hoofs, and shone like bronze. Under each of their wings I could see human hands. So each being had four faces and four wings. The wings of each living being touched the wings of the being beside it. They moved straight in any direction without turning around. Each had a human face in front, the face of a lion on the right, the face of an ox on the left, and the face of an eagle at the back. How's that for a picture? Each had two pairs of outstretched wings, one touching the beings on either side, the other covering its body, and they went in whatever direction that the spirit chose. So real quick, I just want to acknowledge that these are terrifying creatures that we're encountering, that we're seeing described right here. Uh, there's no way around it. They don't have four heads, they have four faces. That's a whole different, imagine me with four faces, you would find it hard to focus. Uh, and if I had little hoofs on my feet and wings, they're like, what's going on? This is kind of a terrifying picture. Later in Ezekiel, he calls these cherubim. You know how we portray cherubim in artwork? They're those tiny little baby angels with the cute rosy red cheeks that you just want to squeeze wearing the little diaper flying around like Cupid. These are not cute. You do not want to squeeze their cheeks. These are terrifying. And I think there's something to that. I think that God and Ezekiel want us to recognize that there is something terrifying initially about seeing God in his full display. There's something to this that he's trying to get through to us that I think we miss often. Let's keep going. As I looked at these beings, I saw four wheels touching the ground, one wheel belonging to each. All four looked alike and were made the same. Each wheel had a second wheel turning crosswise within it. They could move any direction that they faced without turning. Uh, the rims of the wheels were tall and frightening, and they were covered with eyes all around. When the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. When they flew upward, the wheels went to the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. So wherever the spirit went, the wheels and beings went also. Spread out above them was a surface like the sky, glittering like crystal. Eyes on wheels, huh? You know, I heard a story about three boys bragging about their dads. The first one said, you'll never believe it. My dad throws some words on a piece of paper and calls it a poem, and they pay him 500 bucks. The second boy says, Psh, I got you beat. My dad throws words on a piece of paper, calls it a song, and they pay him $1,000. The third just looks at him and shakes his head. My dad throws some words on a paper, calls it a sermon, and it takes eight guys to collect all the money that people give him at the end. <laughs> That has absolutely nothing to do with this, but I felt like we might need some humor, so you're welcome. There you go. Let's finish this out. Above this surface was something that looked like a throne made of sapphire, and on the throne was a figure whose appearance resembled a man. 
From what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like gleaming amber, flickering like fire. And from his waist down, he looked like a burning flame, shining with splendor. All around him was a glowing halo, like a rainbow shining in the clouds on a rainy day. This is what the glory of the Lord looks like to me. When I saw it, I fell face down on the ground and heard someone speaking to me. In seminary, one of Sarah and I's favorite professors, this was her book. She loved Ezekiel, and she had this Bible that looked like it had been dropped in a bucket of water because the binding was falling out. All the pages were loose. It was about four times as big as it should have been. And she would take this Bible, and it was always just amazing to me that she had kept it, but she had all her notes in it. So she'd take it, and she'd open it up. And she'd open up to the book of Ezekiel, and she would weep. Now, if you've been in an ac a Christian academic setting, this is very rare. But she would weep because of verse 28. This is what the glory of the Lord looks like to me. It's not about weird faces, eyes on wheels, wheels within wheels, spirits in the wheels. It's not about crystal cathedrals and sapphire thrones. It's not about figuring out where God is in the wheels or in the faces. It's about looking at verse 28 and realizing, looking up and saying, he is seeing God. This is what the glory of the Lord looks like to me. It's about Ezekiel encountering God in all of his glory in powerful way. Because there's no doubt to Ezekiel that he is encountering God. And he's pretty shocked by it because I don't think I've said it, I've read it yet, but he's seeing God in Babylon, which is the wrong place at the wrong time to encounter God. Because Ezekiel's backstory is that he should have been a priest. When this happened in his 30th year, and in your 30th year in Israel, you would have kind of stepped into that role if you were called to be a priest, if your family was full of priests. But in his mid-20s, he was one of the first political prisoners taken from Israel to Babylon to live in camps, in prison camps, in rural Babylon. And his life was wrecked from that point on. He should have been a priest at 30. Instead, at 30, he's seeing this crazy, over-the-top vision, and his life is being changed in dramatic ways as he's called by God to be a prophet. To a priest, the proper place for the glory of God was really simple. It was in Jerusalem. It was in the temple. It was in the Holy of Holies. It was above the Ark of the Covenant. And yet, here's God showing up in his full glory in Babylon, a sinful nation in the middle of nowhere, to one dude who hasn't even gone through all the purification rites in order to be able to see this. It was the wrong place and the wrong time for someone with... Ezekiel's disposition. He would have been shocked by this. This was not how God was supposed to show himself. And yet here he is, and he can't deny that God is showing himself fully in front of him. As one theologian said, the place where God seemed to be absent and his people seemed to be utterly rejected had been transformed by this invasion of God's presence. And another said that the glorious God has gone into exile with his people. The Israelites haven't been forgotten. They haven't been left behind, pun intended. God has come to them. He showed up where they are. And the beautiful thing is that this isn't a substitute glory 
It's not a different one from what they encounter in Jerusalem. The word used here, the Hebrew word used here is kavod. It's the same exact word that's used for the glory in the temple. And this is its meaning. It means the physical manifestation of God's significance. I love that. The physical manifestation of God's significance, of his weightiness, of his power, of his holiness. The full weight of who he was is there in front of Ezekiel. The same glory that's in the temple has come to Babylon. And God's coming because he wants to call Ezekiel. He's coming for one single person. He does this for one guy. Nobody else was there. Just for one guy to be called. Ezekiel had no idea that this was coming. He didn't ask for it. Uh, He was just sitting on a dock in the bay, watching the tide roll away. When all of a sudden, this happens, and his life was dramatically altered. Another Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, had a similar vision in Isaiah 6, and he says, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne. And then I love, it feels so dramatic when you read this next part. It's like, whoa, okay, Isaiah, take it down. It's all over. I'm doomed, for I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king. Isaiah's immediate response is to cry out like this and say, shoot, I'm dead. I can't live through this. My lips are too filthy. My mind's too filthy. I'm too sinful to be able to make it through this encounter. He doesn't say, God, couldn't you have covered my eyes so that I didn't have to die? He doesn't say it's not worth it. He just says, there's no way out of this. My life's over. I've encountered God in his full glory, and I can't live after this point. It was just the end. The Apostle Paul has a similar encounter. When he first meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, he's a guy named Saul at that point, and his main job was to go and to kill Christians. So that, that's a good one. Uh, And he was going to do that. He was traveling to Damascus to go kill Christians, uh, at the very least to throw them in prison. So he's traveling to go do this when all of a sudden, Acts 9 tells us that a light from heaven suddenly shone around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? Good question. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind for three days, and he did not eat or drink. He drops to the ground. He's immediately blinded, and the encounter changes him so much that he goes from killing Christians to being one of the most influential Christians in the history of the church. Before the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the only proper response that we can have is humility and submission. That's it. It's to fall on our faces like all of these guys have done. It's to cry out that, God, I am not worthy. God, I should have died when I did this. I shouldn't be able to make it through this alive because I'm too sinful, because I've done too many wrong things, because I haven't even tried to stop it. I've just kept going with it, and I should not live through this encounter And I am in the presence of sinlessness, of holiness, of the almighty God. And unfortunately, I think we've forgotten a little bit of that. And I think we need to realize 
that we need to come into God's presence with a bit more humility than we normally do. And I'm just as guilty of this as anyone. I sin. I do regrettable actions, if you don't want to call it sin. There's another term for you. Unfortunately, a lot more than I would ever like to acknowledge to any of you. And all too often, I just let it pass me by. I don't stop. I don't acknowledge it. I don't confess it. I don't bring it before God. I just keep moving on. And then when it's convenient for me, I pray. And I say, God, uh, will you give me wisdom for this meeting that I'm going into? Will you come, Holy Spirit, and fill me? Because I'm just not feeling it right now. I'll pray and I'll say, Jesus, help me to do the things that I, I have to do today. All without ever acknowledging the truth that I am too sinful to have just asked that question without just coming humbly before God. I'm just so focused on myself and what I want to get out of this deal that I just leave that part of it to the side. All without acknowledging that I've sinned and that I deserve nothing. Because we don't deserve anything. We don't. It's not a right. It's a gift. But we treat it like a right most of the time. The truth is that we need a little bit more humility in our relationships with God. But here's the beautiful part. God does the hard work. He goes where we can't go. He goes where maybe we're not even willing to go at first. He steps over so that we can be connected to him. And these guys didn't spontaneously burst into flames and die. So that was good. Because when you encounter the glory of God, you have no option but to be changed. There's nothing else that can happen to you. Isaiah was called to be a prophet to an entire nation when he encountered God in his glory. Paul gets a new name, a new career, and his life just is flipped completely 180. He loses all of his old friends, and he has to make new ones who don't even trust him because he was just trying to kill them. In Ezekiel, here's what it says in Ezekiel 2. Stand up, son of man. I want to speak with you. The Spirit came into me as he spoke, and he set me on my feet. I listened carefully to his words. Son of man, I am sending you. Friends, do you want to be called by God? Do you want to be changed by God? Then I think it's time for us to encounter God in all of his glory. Because that's where that happens. As we come to an end, John 1.14 says that we've seen the glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. We have an advantage over Ezekiel and Isaiah. We don't have to have a crazy vision in order for this to happen. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, because I would probably be terrified out of my mind if I saw what Ezekiel saw. The glory of God has come to earth through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Through him, the glory of God, of the Father, is seen through his Son, Jesus. You want to encounter the glory of God? then it's time to meet Jesus, and he wants to meet with you. Listen to this uh, quote from A.W. Tozer. God wills that we should push on into his presence and live our whole life there. It's more than a doctrine, a theological point, a desire, an ideal. It's a life to be enjoyed every moment of every day. The presence of God is the central fact of Christianity. 
the presence of God is the central fact of Christianity. It's one of our most basic truths, is that when we say that we're going to follow Jesus, that we are in the presence of God, that we are in the glory of God, that it is here with us. Now, we don't always acknowledge it. We don't always even want to acknowledge it when we're doing stuff that we know we shouldn't be doing, but it doesn't take away from the fact that it is still here, that God is still here in his full power and is still in his full presence with us right here and right now. It's not something you have to wish to encounter. It's, it's not a faraway hope. It's not in, uh, this big ideal that we're looking for. It's here right now. It's our central fact. Here today, you can encounter the same glory that Ezekiel encountered right here and right now. And the best part is that God wants nothing more than for us to encounter him. So if the worship team wants to come back up, I want to end just simply by praying for God to come and to be here, for him to come and to show up among us this morning. And I want to begin just by praying for the most basic thing with humility, just confessing the reality that we sin, that we don't deserve this, but that God still wants to show himself. So if you want, if you want to pray with me, I just soon invite you, if you want to stand, sit, kneel, open your hands, just keep your hands closed, keep it chill, whatever feels comfortable for you. Uh, let's pray together and invite the Holy Spirit to come. Most merciful God, we just confess that we have sinned. We've sinned in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. We've not loved you with our whole hearts. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. And most of the time, we don't even want to acknowledge it. Have mercy on us, Jesus, and forgive us our sins. We thank you, Jesus, that you've done the hard work, that you've created the bridge, that you've crossed over and reached out your hand so that we can come and encounter you. And I ask Jesus this morning for each and every one of us that we will encounter you in all of your glory. Will you come reveal yourself to us today, God. We ask that you'll just come and fill this place right now. Because God, we want to be changed. We know that the only place we can be changed is in your presence. So we just ask you right here and right now to come.